This is Bloomberg Intelligence. We're really getting into now the streaming arms race. Dish is looking at that and saying we can really build a nice niche for ourselves. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The dollar is the dominant concept in the planet. I think the acquisition is a natural progression of what Microsoft can do with this technology going forward. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at the revenue recovery for MGM Resorts. Plus, the UK residential renovation gets a boost from the housing hot streak. But first, let's talk about travel. Uh, are you going anywhere for the rest of the summer? Are you making any plans for the winter? And what does that mean for the airline stocks, hotel stocks, the whole thing? Joining us now, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Airlines Analyst George Ferguson. Uh, George, this past week, in a surprise move, the EU didn't stop U.S. citizens from coming into the EU and be able to vacation there. They're going to reevaluate in the next two weeks. What's inter- continental travel like right now? So I think that was one of the few good news points on transatlantic travel. So uh, transatlantic travel is, I would say, a hodgepodge of requirements and regulations right now. The most befuddling to me, I think, is that the the U.S. has excluded a lot of our uh, you know, key partners from uh, Europe, the Germans, the, um, you know, the English and such, from even coming here, quarantine or not. Um, you know, but we can go there uh, to some of the countries, and some of them we have to quarantine, some not. Usually in the southern hemisphere, the ones that like and need travel the most uh, have the least restrictions. But we're starting to see, you know, a major spike in some of the uh, some of the virus activity down there. So it makes me wonder how long that's going to last, or how long U.S. Uh, travelers going to want to go there. So I just call it a ridiculous hodgepodge right now, really hard to figure out, very country-dependent. Where are we just in U.S. domestic uh, capacity right now, George? It seems like there's more planes on the ground and in the air. Where are we in terms of that capacity? Yeah, so U.S. capacity, as you know, as we sort of near the end of the summer travel season, uh, you know, some of the low-cost carriers are even flying more than they did in 2019. Mm-hmm. Lots of carriers are, I would say, within 10 or 15 percent of uh, of 2019 levels. Um, and this is just on leisure travel. So I'd say from a leisure travel perspective, from what we've heard from a lot of them, is that they're back to 2019 levels. So it's been quite a nice bounce back on leisure in the U.S. and uh, the domestic market. Does that hold up with Delta? So... Well, I think there's a couple of problems. I think Delta is a bit of a problem. I, I seem to think we're not going to ever go back to the lockdowns that we saw in 2020. I think we understand the virus too much. There's some people that just won't, uh, I think, you know, refrain as much as they would maybe last March when they didn't understand what was at risk. Um, so I think Delta does take some demand off the table. But I think more importantly is the business travel, right? I think the leisure's closing, uh, the heavy leisure season's closing. Kids are going back to school. It's going to make it harder for mom and dad to get away with the kids. If you don't have kids, I guess, you know, it's it's uh, it's easier. And companies, though, starting to push back that return to office. I think employees need to be back in the office before the companies really flesh out what travel policies are going to be. And so I think without that sort of return to office or pushing it back, I think we're not going to see that business travel for longer. And I think that really hurts the fall season and winter season this year because of that. And I think Delta has an effect on that. 
And we're talking about the Delta variant, not Delta Airlines. Good point. Good point. <laughs> airline conversation. I'm sure the folks at Delta uh, appreciate clarifying that. George, all right. So it's it's interesting. You know, people were hoping by this time we'd have you know, a more vibrant transatlantic, a more vibrant maybe in, in, in intercontinental European travel. But this Delta variant has really put a, a wrinkle in that. Are the airlines, are they preparing for... A, a slower than expected kind of fall, you know third and fourth quarter are they guiding down so uh, as of right now we don't see that we've just finished earnings season um, you know most of them were pretty upbeat on booking trends they were I mean there were some of them that would readily admit that um, business travel is a is a short booking window um, you know meaning business travel is usually booked within a couple of weeks and so they said they look we don't we don't have a sense for where business is going and we do see a taper in leisure but most of them were, were pretty upbeat uh, so I don't see them guiding yet but we'll be we're watching closely right now are there enough uh, flight attendants and pilots wow. to do stuff there are challenges with labor like everywhere else in the economy. Pilots are, you know, pilots are very sort of, I don't know what the right term, maybe sticky, you know, sort of labor force because they've got such a specialized skill set. And the challenge there is more getting them trained and having them current to fly the equipment that you've got at the airline at this point, right? And some airlines cut part of the fleet, so they might not need pilots that fly XYZ, but they need pilots, pilots that fly PDQs. And so they got to get them trained and move them to the, move them to what they have in the fleet. Others haven't been flying for a while. That's a little bit of a challenge. That's a challenge for the uh, for the full service carriers. You know, the United, the Deltas, the American, um, the low cost guys. They're having a problem because I think they're trying to take a lot of market share here. And we're seeing companies like Spirit. I think really push the amount of capacity they put in the marketplace without having the appropriate levels of reserve airplanes and other, um, you know, and pilots that aren't, uh, that are in reserve ready to meet, you know, the need if they have a weather event or something like that. And that's hurt them. We've seen that recently. So I think the low cost guys are pushing it. The full service guys do have a genuine sort of training problem. Okay, George. Thank you very much. George Ferguson, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Airlines Analyst. All right. Coming up on the program, we look at which mining and metals companies are best positioned for the transition to a low-carbon world. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we spend a lot of time on this program talking about ESG investing, environmental, social, governance. It's growing in popularity. This time, we want to take a look at how the metals and mining industry fares under this analysis. For that, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence ESG analyst Shaheen Contractor. Just at first blush, Shaheen, it would seem to me the metals and mining companies might not score very well on ESG. Is that a, is that a poor bias on my part? Metals and mining have always been sort of the traditional, just like oil and gas, sort of the traditional folks who have faced a lot of ESG flags. But I think the benefit of that is they picked up their game fairly early on in the process. Uh, and, and I think we're seeing a number of miners sort of ramp up. A number of them have set these carbon reduction goals over the last year or so, I would say. Probably something I, I haven't seen before. So, 
you you kind of rank them, like right? So so you go over forty six metal and mining companies. Before we get into like who scored well and who didn't, what were your criteria? Because a lot of times, I feel like companies say one thing and do another. But even more importantly, right. they say like carbon intensity versus you know uh, versus my own operations, and and, and those make Correct. a difference in how you measure it. Absolutely. And so our ranking is really looking at these carbon reduction goals. So these are our BI carbon scores. And what we're really doing is we're assessing companies on two pillars. So one is a historic pillar, which looks at sort of reduction trends over five years and along with the current intensity. And the second is more sort of forward-looking. It's where here we're quantifying these forward-looking reduction goals and really comparing it to a temperature-aligned benchmark. So at the end of the day, we're just seeing, you know, who's aligned with the Paris goals, who's ambitious enough. Um, to your point, of course, they're, they're tricky, which is why we've come up with this standardized way of doing things. So there's three ways to kind of measure stuff. Like one is scope one and two, which are basically the uh, carbon reduction using your own power. So you're using less. Uh, The other is uh, the types of uh, uh, energy that you're using. So instead of using coal, Mm -hmm. maybe you use solar. And then the other is the products that you produce Mm -hmm. and cutting that. Are any of these guys tackling scope three? Because in the oil community, scope three is, is so hard to do because it's basically trying to tackle emissions in like jet fuel and what you're driving in your car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think scope three for things like oil and gas is the elephant in the room. I think if we go beyond that to other sectors, it isn't so much of a focus. I think mm-hmm. the one company that comes to my mind that is tackling scope three is, uh, if I remember right, it's Newmont. Um, but again, other than that, it's largely just operational emissions because I think if you, you know, you have transportation, oil and gas, that's really where scope three is the elephant in the room. But so, when it comes to metals and mining, we're not there yet. So, Shaheen, for a metals and mining company, what do they actually do to improve their ESG kind of footprint, if you will? Sure. Uh, so, you know, for, for it, it really depends on the metal produced, and it's just so diversified. I'll give you the example of aluminum. So aluminum is, again, just one of the most carbon-intensive industries. And over there, it's things like increasing scrap-based production, which is much less carbon-intensive. And also decarbonizing the power sector, for example, because aluminum just uses a lot of electricity. But it varies for different metals, so it varies literally from company to company, mine to mine. But to that point, you take a look at the carbon scores that are the worst, and that's going to like Rio and Glencore. Is that is uh-huh. that a coal thing? Uh, so Rio Tinto has a fair amount of operations in aluminum. And just the way the score is designed, aluminum being so carbon intensive has to reduce emissions by a lot more than other diversified miners. So by default, they automatically tend to tend towards the lower end of their score of our scorecard. Again, just because they're so much more carbon intensive than any other metal. And Rio Tinto having sort of an arm in that um, would weigh down on them. Just like any other company, like you'll see Hindalco, you'll see Russell towards the bottom. So, Shaheen, is there any regionality to this? Are, are, are European domiciled companies, do they do better? Because it seems to me I've ESG concerns or ESG issues are more pronounced in Europe than perhaps, or more advanced than they are in the U.S. So do we see that in some of the results and some of the performance of these companies? So Paul, you're right. I think for most sectors, we do see this regional distance where Europe is leading. 
I think the metal the mining's identity just because everything is so globally spread like Africa South South America all the operations are just diversified. I think for metal the mining's it was more by sub industry and what I mean by that is base metal companies had far more goals than precious metals again base metal example aluminum is much more carbon intensive which is why it's more material for operations again which is why companies are setting these goals precious metals not so carbon intensive yeah less feels, of a focus less of a priority yeah it feels like copper gold kind of get a little bit of a easier pass yeah. on that um they do, do and, and they should because it's not that carbon intensive it comes down to sort of costs and things like that are the are investors rewarding these companies for that so you know that's a great question and i still have to do the analysis for metals but i can give you what i did as an example for utilities where we saw that you know companies with higher bi carbon scores were more likely to be held in an ESG fund. So clearly ESG investors are prioritizing these I would say these issues. Now, I would wait to see what kind of analysis that leads to metals and mining, but um that's what we had for utilities. So definitely um something prioritized for at least the resource intensive, environmentally heavy sectors. Yeah, like metals and mining. I'm just wondering at you know, I know this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for managers, for board members, for sh- shareholders this uh, focus on ESG uh, in addition to, you know, the income statement and the balance sheet and things like that. Yeah. In the metals and mining space, what, what's what's the sense you get from from management in terms of their commitment? Um, I think metals and mining is again like an industry that's just been early exposed to ESG just because it's amongst the resource intensive sectors mm-hmm. i think the one thing i've been seeing from metals and mining companies is an increasing focus on safety so things like fatality rates uh, incident rates and i'm seeing an increasing number of companies that sort of executive compensation and tie this back to things like safety and and to some extent also emissions so you know that compensation incentive gives you a direct sort of monetary push to do these things so yeah. Definitely more of a focus from that. Yeah, it's sort of like they had to have the right to operate for so long in different countries that they couldn't mess it up, um, that they already have in some ways better practices, um, more conditioned, I guess. All right, Shaheen, thanks a lot. Shaheen Contractor uh, joining us, Bloomberg Intelligence ESG analyst. Coming up on the program, we look at the revenue recovery for MGM Resorts. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. Well, as you wind up having the Delta variant wreaking havoc pretty much all across the world, uh, how does that affect different sectors? That's what we've been working on throughout Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, one particular area I want to focus on now is the gaming stocks, like MGM, uh, Las Vegas Sands. Uh, what's the implication there? So let's welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst Brian Egger. All right, so Delta variant's running rampant here. Who's getting hurt the most? So I think if you look at, you know, if you look at MGM as kind of a proxy for the industry, certainly like in the second quarter and thinking about what that means, uh, I would say, you know, the Macau market in Asia got hit particularly hard where we're still at half of 2019's pre-pandemic level. 
of gaming activity. Part of that is because there was a, uh, an outbreak in Guangdong province, which is a major feeder market for Macau, and that definitely affected some of the traffic info. That's been an ongoing issue for Macau and could be uh, for a while until that resolves. When we move to the U.S., Las Vegas actually has been on a bit of an upswing and, and close to or back to uh, pre-pandemic levels, uh, and it benefited when the market went back to full resort occupancy back in June. And yes, the question going forward is whether or not um, the arrival of the Delta variant will affect what we expect it to happen, which is you know a big uptick in convention activity as we get to the fall months. And that we really have to watch and see carefully. So what are the uh, the gaming companies and the big hotels telling the street about that convention business? Because when I think of Vegas, again, pretty much every time I've been to Vegas, it's been with a convention. Um, is that business going to come back in this year, or, we, or is the Delta pushing out until next year? So the bookings, uh, and again, a lot of this is happening, as you can understand, in real time, but the bookings... Uh, business on the books for the fall and going into 22 have been actually quite strong. Uh, the real question is, as we approach the actual dates, depending on how companies adjust their travel uh, uh, policies, et cetera, whether or not that might result in cancellations. But at least the book of business going into this period, as of the company's most recent comments during the earnings season, were actually quite favorable. So that leads me to my next question. How, many, how much cancellation can these guys stand? Given the fact that, you know, I think the industry has weathered uh, being with all casinos shut back in uh, last March through June and has endured pretty significant capacity limitations, now that the market's back to full occupancy, I guess you could argue they've been stress-tested quite well, notwithstanding what might happen with the, the Delta variant. So, you know, it is an issue. What has happened during the downturn is that that 20% of Las Vegas room nights at a company like MGM that we that would normally be occupied by convention goers has been taken up by uh, casino customers, which is a less attractive business that's lower price. And the question is whether or not they have to go back to depending on that lower price casino customer, that leisure customer, if the convention activity is somehow disrupted. All right, so we've done Macau. Maybe we'll go back there in Vegas. Now, how about the regional markets around the country? Um, you know, they I think they did a little bit better. They're less dependent upon that uh, convention business. What's the outlook for some of the, the, the regional gaming? Regional gaming outlook is actually quite strong. I mean, when we look at MGM in the second quarter, and we compare all these results to the second quarter of 2019 because most of these casinos were closed during the second quarter of 2020, when we look at that, the uh, regional gaming revenue is actually up about 6% versus the second quarter of 2019, uh, which is pretty impressive. And not only that, because the companies are still operating with significantly scaled back labor and marketing, uh, they've seen some really significant margin improvement. So we're not only seeing a return to pre-pandemic levels of revenue in the regional markets, but also very strong margin gains and EBITDA flow-through because of the fact that the cost base has been um, uh, pared down so significantly during the pandemic. Uh, Most other industries are dealing with uh, worker shortages, a lot of input cost increases, wage increases, etc. How about these guys... Let's. I mean, you can go broad, but I was thinking more specifically of uh, the U.S. and like, who, who how, what do they do to margins? Like, how do they pass that on, et cetera? So I think what could happen, and it's something that companies have mentioned, is is an expense um, category that they're watching carefully. Is although most of the hotel companies, for example, we follow, manage, and receive 
revenue or profit-based fees as a form of compensation uh, for managing or uh, franchising those hotels, um, you know, there is a chance that the so-called house profit margins, the margins at the hotel owner level, could be under some pressure uh, to the extent that we see rising labor costs. Now, of course, they're going into this period, uh, just as we said for the casino companies, having significantly reduced and uh, right-sized their, their cost structure and their labor structure to accommodate a what in many cases has been a smaller audience. So as occupancy begins to return, um, and as you see labor and staffing levels return to pre-pandemic levels, you know, this could be a cost issue we're going to have to watch to the extent that labor accounts for such a significant portion of the expense base of both hotel companies and casino companies. Great stuff, Brian. Super appreciate it. Brian Egger, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst. Coming up on the program, we check in on the buoyant UK housing market and look at how hybrid working model is impacting European real estate investment trusts. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Measuring the health of an economy, in that it's critical to understand the health of its housing market. Let's do that for the UK. At one point, housing market was on fire. The rental market was on fire. The stocks related to housing, building, construction were on fire. Are they still? Well, Eshan Torabali, a senior analyst uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence for Business Services, uh, joins us now. So just broad stroke real quick, where is the state of the housing market within the UK? Um, hi there. Um, yes, yeah, so the housing market is still very hot, uh, actually. Um, it's continued to grow strongly, sort of rebounding from the pandemic. Um, and that appears to be underpinned for the next, I would say, for the next few months um, in terms of looking at how the data is progressing. So, yes, um, still, still a very hot market. All right. Let's talk about the, you know, the repair, the maintenance, the improvement of uh, existing housing stocks and apartments. I mean, that's also a hot sector in the U.S. as people remodel their home because they're going to be like, well, I've been living in this thing nonstop for a couple of years and who knows how much longer. So talk to us about that type of spending in the UK and maybe how some investors are looking for exposure? Yeah, so um, I think it's exactly the same trend in the UK. So uh, that spend fell off quite strongly at the beginning of the pandemic um, with lockdowns that we had here um, sort of in early 2020. But it's come back very, very strongly. Um, The last data point, which is May, that we have for UK data is up 93%. So it is very, very strong year over year, but that's partly a a reflection of last year's weakness. Um, But I I think you're right in terms of the trend and what's driving that. Partly there's pent-up demand from that lost sort of couple of months from the lockdown last year. Partly there's underlying strengths in this kind of product given we're we're in a pandemic and people are spending more time at home and they want to make their homes better. Plus the fact people are not taking paid vacations abroad as much as they would normally do. So they have more money to plow into um, their houses. And then the final point, as we alluded to earlier, that when the housing market is strong, this is also good for repair and modeling because the data shows over time that most people spend on their houses when they've just moved. So all of those things are all moving in the right direction currently. I so well know that uh, from moving during the pandemic as well. Um, What stocks are most exposed and what's priced into that? 
So um, the, the companies that I look at which are exposed to this space are Travis Perkins, which is the UK's biggest building material distributor, um, Grafton, which is also in, in a similar market, um, and then finally um, Howden Joinery, which is a ki- the UK's biggest kitchen fitting company. So these companies are sort of you know linked into um, into this trend. Um, they. Uh, I would say they've recovered very well in terms of share price. So year to date, they've outperformed the general market by something like 20%. Mm. Um, and it's been mirroring the sort of the, the underlying data. They've been raising guidance, etc. So I think a strong recovery is priced in, um, in terms of what's, what's happened to the share prices. Um, but from here, it looks like momentum from an earnings perspective is still pretty good. Um, um, there's no reason to sort of be nervous about sort of the, the, the growth of, our, uh, of renovation data or repair data, etc. So that there is, you know, they, they've performed very well, um, but there's still more momentum to come, it seems. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, because I, I think a lot of people here in the States, they're saying you know, we, we do have a housing boom here, uh, low mortgage rates, people, you know, moving out and wanting more space and uh, understanding that that's similar in the UK. The real question, though, is how long does it last? When are people going to be like, wait a minute, I don't want to live in the middle of nowhere or in the burbs. I'm going to be back in the city. What are some of your companies saying about that? So I think it's a very good question because I think um, – in the short in the short term, everyone is so has been focused on their cash flow and now the rebound that's coming through. So it's kind of sort of getting their business back on track in terms of um, opening their outlets or paying dividends and so on. So it's, very, it's still very much about that. But I think the, the key risk, as you highlighted in the question, is how how transient is this? Is this something that can last? over the medium term, or is this something very much that's just going to last while the pandemic is kind of playing through, as it were? So once we all return to offices and so on uh, over over time with vaccines and so on, does that then lead to a sort of a fall off in, um, in this kind of demand that we're seeing? I, I think the other thing I would add to that is that um, house prices have been very strong um, here in the UK. So um, there, there's a risk that they're maybe too strong mm-hmm. to support a longer term recovery. So there's a, there's a risk that maybe things have got a bit too expensive and that could stall any eventual recovery. But um, we're, we're not there yet. And in the short term, it seems like everything is moving in the right direction. But there is that question mark over the medium term. Thank you so much, Bloomberg Intelligence Business Services Analyst Ashan Torabali. Let's turn to the world of REITs and the impact of a hybrid work world. The question is, on the other side of this pandemic, in a Delta world, what will the work living at home type of dynamic look like? And what does that mean for uh, commercial real estate? For more, we welcome Sue Munden, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Property Analyst. So Sue, what are the companies saying here as we try on a global scale uh, to reopen? Well, they're they're saying at the moment that um, their tenants are really just refurbishing their space to try and cope with more meeting rooms, um, more space to be able to have Zoom calls, um, and less space for desks. Um, And they're busy doing that at the moment, but not really reducing their space requirements too much. I do think, though, that over the course of the next 18 months, maybe two years, as we all come back to work and we all settle down to a more hybrid pattern, that there may be some more profound impacts um, on the space that we're using and what the tenants really want. To that point, before we get to like what they may want, I guess the question is, when do they make that decision? Because with so much uncertainty, like our, our lease is up at a certain point, does something have to be locked in? Like, What's the time frame for that? Yeah, so, yes, leases are important. In the UK, they can be quite long. In the continent, there may be three years or nine years altogether, but with three or six-year breaks. 
Um, so it, it does vary enormously what the lease lengths are. Um, to, um, but also, the, the thing is that um, the cost of um, your office is quite low in comparison with the cost of your staff, for example. And so it's probably not the immediate priority. You know, all the occupiers are saying they want to be able to attract talent, so they want a good place for their, you know, their staff to go. But at the same time, um, you know, if they wanted to cut their costs by 20%, they could um, sublet a very small portion of their um, property. So that's a decision that will come further down the line in the, you know, working through how we deal with a, a hybrid environment, hybrid working environment. So the last time I was in London, admittedly, it was two years ago now, um, I was just amazed that despite Brexit and all the doom and gloom, all you could see around the city of London was cranes building new structures in the city of London, outside the city of London. What's the London real estate market like these days? So actually, for offices, the supply of offices isn't that huge. I know we had Brexit, um, and you know then we had the pandemic, and so construction has slowed down a lot for offices. There's a lot of home building going on, and I actually believe that um, you know the, the sort of problems that we're facing here is that come 2030, um, that all the offices have to be um, what we call EPC compliant, which means that they have to be A or B ranked for climate change and their, their emissions and the energy that they consume. And not much of the London stock um, actually um, complies with that at the moment. So there is a big concern um, amongst the um, community, office community as to how much money they're going to have to spend to get their offices to that state. And I think what that's going to drive one of the reasons, but there are others as well, it will drive a lot of the, the sort of obsolete space, all the stranded assets, if you like, because they've, they're not compliant, um, will be converted into residential or to other uses as well. Oh, that's interesting. And that will, you know, during that renovation process, they'll solve both, both the um, energy compliant um, problems as well as getting the property uses aligned more with demand, which is the big thing that we're facing at the moment. So aside from um, longer term having to retrofit their offices to fit the climate rules, um, in an immediate basis in terms of trying to bring people back, you were starting to mention this before, but what are the souped up cool things that offices <laughs> are going to try and do? Well, they want more amenities um, in the properties. Um, you know, they want some meeting space. And I think this mixed-use sort of campus style um, is, is really gaining some traction. Um, British Land already has, you know, sort of campus style um, properties. You know, it's a bit like Canary Wharf, really, which I, I know you know well, um, which has a, a huge shopping center at the bottom, and it's got lots of residential towers now, and, as well as offices. So the ability to network physically as well as online is important. Um, but the other thing is we're finding um, around Paris and London that there are sort of clusters of certain types of industry, uh, well, office users. So there's the knowledge quarter, there's the life sciences quarter, there's you know, the city, the financial quarter, and, and tech quarters, obviously, as well. And so the, the buildings and the communities there will move towards sort of attracting those employees. And I think that's something that we'll see a lot more of going forward. So much more mixed use. Um, places like London, central Paris has always been much better because it always had a lot of residential in it. But the city of London was, 
you know, I think we've spoken about this before, but the City of London, um, you know, is very much just offices. And um, they've already now said that they're going to allow planning for more residential. So I think it'll be switching buildings to a better use that has those amenities that's, you know, near good transport networks, um, that is, you know, got good ventilation for well-being, that people can control their mental health. All those sorts of things are going to be really important going forward. And it will take a year or two, I think, for that to go through the system and for us to really understand um, how much office space is needed. But there'll be space needed for other things. All right, Sue, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Sue Munden, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Property Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.